Good morning to you. My name is Emma, and I'm part of this wonderful church family here at Abbey. I want to begin by thanking those family and friends who've come here especially to support me this morning. And I also want to take a moment to thank those many others who have contributed to my preach today, whose pearls I will share with you in a bit, and who I know will watch the service online over the coming week. This morning, I'm completing the summer series on Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, and I'm going to begin by giving a bit of background to today's verses. When putting this context together, I came to the conclusion that the background to this letter has had one of the most profound and significant effects on me from the whole of the Bible. Throughout my preach, I will be posing questions for you to ponder on, and I will begin with one now. For you, who is the least likely person who means something to you, who will ever come to faith? Now let me take you back 2,000 years to a young man called Saul. Saul was a devout Jew and a rising leader among the Pharisees. When Jesus was crucified, it is suggested that he wasn't present for it, rather in Jerusalem, too young to be involved in the deliberations of the Sanhedrin. And anyway, he despised the things that Jesus stood for. In Acts 7, we read how when Stephen, a follower of Jesus, was stoned to death for believing in him, Saul stood by holding the clothes of the stone throwers, probably so they wouldn't get blood on them, giving approval to his death. In Acts 9, breathing murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, Saul asked the high priest to write him letters to take to the synagogues in Damascus so that they would grasp up the names of those who were followers of the way so that he could take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And this is where it happens. As he was taking those said letters on the road to Damascus in order to root out believers for persecution, a light from heaven flashed around him and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? From that moment on, Saul was forever changed. Our use of the term today, he's seen the light, she's seen the light, is, I believe, a direct reference to this passage. People nowadays refer to Damascus Road experiences where complete turnarounds happen in people's lives. From that point on, Saul knew what it was to be seen by God and he knew what it was to be forgiven by God. These things changed his life. Saul, who became Paul, inspired by God, went on to write 1 and 2 Corinthians that God ordained to be in the Bible that we read today. Maybe you're astounded that such a persecutor and hater of believers went on to get two letters into the Bible. To you, having heard this context, maybe it appears that these letters were written by hands that had the blood of Stephen and many other believers on them. But no, because for Saul, like for each of us, the blood of Jesus has washed the blood off of all of our hands. 
Paul also wrote letters to the Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and potentially the book of Hebrews. Almost half of our New Testament was written by a man who shows to us in what I think is such a powerful, eloquent, moving way how God can forgive, how he can transform, how he can use us, frail, weak, sinful people, for his kingdom purposes. For somebody here today, that might be all that you need to take away this morning, that for the person who you thought of at the start of my talk as being the least likely person to come to faith, there is always, always, always hope. God can redeem your people who maybe seem to you so far from him right now. Your people could see the same light that Saul saw on their own road to Damascus. And may many people here not be able to read Paul's letters in the future without remembering where he came from, how he was transformed, and what is possible between our incredible God and the people who we love. Let me read the verses from Paul's letter that I'm going to talk about this morning. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 to 10. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about the weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Some more questions for you. What is your default position when you feel weak? To you, what does weakness look like and what do you think about it? How do we react to perceived weakness in our families, in our churches, in our workplaces, in our doctor's surgeries, in our neighbourhoods? In the introduction to Patrick Regan's inspirational book, Honesty Over Silence, It's Okay Not To Be Okay, Malcolm Duncan writes this. There can be a conspiracy of silence when it comes to brokenness. To allow a culture of silence to continue is to become complicit in maintaining a facade of faith, which is deadly and guilty of two great sins. The first is to perpetuate the myth that only the strong can be faithful. And the second is that to be honest is not as important as to be strong. I consistently feel proud of the way that Ebby Church runs Kintsugi Hope courses here, created by Patrick Regan and open to everyone. Courses carried out in a safe, accepting, non-judgmental space that share with and support people in their brokenness, that gives permission for people not to be okay, and that truly combat conspiracies of silence where mental and emotional health are concerned. 
Henri Nguyen, author, priest and counsellor, writes, keep saying God loves me and God's love is enough. You have to choose the solid place over and over again and return to it after failure. Trust that one day that love will have conquered enough of you that even the most fearful part will allow love to cast out fear. I think that Jesus' grace in verse 8, that is sufficient for us, gently guides us back time and time again to that solid place where fear is cast out from the fearful parts of us, where our weakness often trembles. How do I think that God strengthens us when we feel weak, broken, vulnerable, unsure? In Pete Grieg's inspirational, thought-provoking book, God on Mute, he writes this, Whenever life gets tough and we cry out to God for help, our desire is always to be airlifted out of the theatre of war. But more often than not, instead of airlifting us to safety, God parachutes down to join us in the muck and chaos of our situation. I love that. That is what I think the so Christ's power may rest on me of verse 9 means in today's passage. Christ parachuting into the hole where I am. His presence with me lifting my head. His hand on my shoulder strengthening me. The knowing that he hasn't under any circumstances abandoned me, empowering me. Back in May, a friend recommended to me a book called The Gifts of Imperfection by Brenny Brown, and I've recently started reading it. In it, she writes, the most powerful emotions that we experience have very sharp points, like the tip of a thorn. When they prick us, they cause discomfort and even pain. For many of us, our first response to vulnerability and pain of these sharp points is not to lean into the discomfort and feel our way through, but rather to make it go away. I think that in this passage, Paul is encouraging us to learn important things from our thorns, to push through the pain and see what God wants to show us through them, rather than automatically asking for him to take them away. In the same vein, a few months ago, we were in a little Christian bookshop in Launceston when I saw and bought a book called Invest Your Disappointments. In his introduction, Paul Mallard writes, we cannot avoid disappointment, but how do we avoid being paralyzed by it? And what can we learn from it? The last question might be one that you won't even countenance answering because of the pain that your struggles have caused you. Maybe you don't want under any circumstances to learn anything positive from your heartbreaks and pain and can't see anything good coming from them. But I think that this is what Paul is encouraging us to do in this passage when he lets us know that his, how his reliance on Christ somehow miraculously transformed those places where he was weak into strengths. Christ is like that. Often the person who disappoints us the most is ourselves and often in those places where we are weak and failing. And time and time again, these weaknesses, these vulnerabilities, these failures are the things that are so hard to talk about. In one of my all-time favourite books, The Wisdom House, Rob Parsons writes, If you want acquaintances, tell them your successes. If you want friends, 
tell them your fears. These verses that I've been given to speak on today are very well-known and often quoted ones, and initially I felt a bit daunted by what I was actually going to bring. I imagined that there were many commentaries by eminent Bible scholars that I could dip into, musings by people who'd spent years studying these verses and their context. And then it came to me, like that light from above, that I wanted to ask my family and my friends about their take on these verses and about their personal struggles from their lived experience. I came back from being the speaker to leaders at Hill House Explore Camp on the evening of Friday the 29th of July. By 9.30, I'd put together my WhatsApp, which included the verses and two questions that I asked people to answer for me within the coming two weeks to include in today's preach. I wasn't ready for what happened next. By 10pm, I'd received my first six-word answer. An interview would be arranged for the Monday morning. At 4.30am, someone WhatsApped me two pages of her struggles. Someone sent me photos to explain her answers. Someone included quotes. In total, 25 people from across the UK and as far away as Nepal have answered my questions. My whole August has been deepened and enriched by people's answers, which have never been far from my mind or my heart throughout this month. Brenny Brown writes, owning our story and loving ourselves through the process is the bravest thing we will ever do. Shame hates it when we reach out and tell our story. It hates having words wrapped around it. It cannot survive being shared. Shame loves secrecy. My family and friends' stories have humbled me, have altered me, have inspired me, have strengthened me. I am thankful for them. And so to my first question that I posed, what do you think was Paul's thorn in the flesh? Many people refer to physical ailments, physical limitations, some sort of infirmity, a speech impediment which left him not being very eloquent, a broken rib, a physical disability which limited his effectiveness. Several people referred to bad eyesight, an eye complaint, a medical issue with his eyes that hindered him. One person mentioned something that undermined his sense of identity and calling in Christ. Another, something that reminded him that he couldn't do things without God's help, or something that had the capability of making him feel that he wasn't enough. One friend mentioned depression. Another referred to something that plagued his peace of mind, perhaps an experience from his past or a sin he committed or a sin committed against him that created an unhealthy thought pattern. Another said a nagging ongoing challenge that doesn't go away, yet causes a deeper vulnerability and dependency on God's strength that enables him to continue with his calling. One friend looked up what those eminent Bible scholars said and found a list of five possible things. One, weakness. Two, insults. Three, hardships. Four, persecutions. Five, calamities. One friend wrote about something that reminded him of his humanity and limitation. Another wrote about a memory from Paul's past. And another wrote about his guilt to do with the day he stood and held the coats of those stoning Stephen. She wrote, 
I can't imagine the sight of Stephen being stoned to death was something that he ever forgot. It must have been so hard for him to forgive himself. And her comments brought me straight to us in today's world. Are there things in your life that you can't seem to forget or unsee? Are you able to forgive yourself? The final category that people mentioned was people. <clears throat> Whether it was a difficult relationship, the persistent hostility of opponents, the people in Paul's life who made him feel buffeted about, or as one friend wrote, I would say that it was people who were accusatory and carriers of the religious spirit. Paul suffered their constant torment. When I re read, when I read Paul's reference to his thorn in verse 8 and 9, two words jump out to me so powerfully. The first is torment. Do you know what it is to feel tormented? And the second is pleaded. Do you know what it is to plead with God or others? The second question that I asked people was, what is a thorn in the flesh for you? And as I drew up charts to document people's answers and realised that I had five pages for this one, what I knew I wanted to say, particularly to people here who are part of churches, is that many people are longing to talk about their very real thorns. Several people shared that their thorn was relying on themselves rather than others, and more importantly, on God. For one, it was the persistent and spiritual opposition of principalities and powers. For another, it was their sadness of all of the evil in the world, particularly crimes against children. Another shared their struggles with anger issues. Someone wrote, a fear that I'm not enough, of being inadequate. Life will often press that thorn in deeper, and the pain of that could lead me to anxiety and wanting to give up. But it also reminds me that God is more than enough. If I yoke myself to him, he will cover my weaknesses and speak truth into my identity. Someone wrote of the devil trying to intervene when you are focusing on God's love. Another about her inability to understand things quickly. Two people wrote to me about when things at work are tricky. One of these people wrote about how she brought her work situation before God for his light to break in and how, through colleagues' shared experience of major bereavements during COVID, the situation had greatly improved. She sent me this photo of an echinacea that she had neglected over the winter. Once she brought it into the light, it flourished. Such a great example. Several people mentioned family. One wrote, journeying with a loved one with intermittent times of acute anxiety, limiting your life choices and pervading the atmosphere of home and family is a thorn. So thankful to God for his provision and strength in the midst of such times. One person shared with me how their mum, long dead now, continues to be a thorn in life for the way that she'd mothered. Another friend wrote to me, my father's rejection of me as a child caused me great pain and I think of myself as rejectable or, and leaveable, someone not worth staying around for. But I believe God gives us the grace to love with it and he counters it 
with truth and love and hope. Someone wrote to me as the parent saying, I continue to suffer the consequences of some of the unwise choices and decisions that I've made during my life. My children, now adults, when growing up, have suffered the consequences of my life journey, despite my attempts to love and put them first. A friend wrote this about her thorns, people. Whenever I've been at my worst, it is usually due to an accusation that is from self-righteous people who don't understand me or what I stand for. There is no grace in them, and their bar is always far too high. Seven minutes later, a friend in a completely different part of the country wrote this as her answer as to what her thorns are. People in our lives who cause pain, stress, irritation, distress, hurt and upset by the things that they say and do to us. I've had thorn people in my life. It's a decade ago since Johnny and I had a thorn person in our life. Someone who we expected so much more from. In amongst the shock and horror of it, I had a memory of a preach I'd heard where someone had exhorted the congregation to pray for those who persecute you. I was teaching at Eastern at the time and Johnny was working for a bank. Johnny always left the house at quarter to seven for work and within days of the issue happening, Johnny began daily returning to the edge of the bed, holding my hand and saying a prayer for him. We did that every day for about two years. It was amazing how quickly those prayers had an effect. It didn't actually, they didn't actually change the situation, but they changed our hearts. And what began to happen was we began to add other people's names into our morning prayers, those who needed a blessing from God or help at a difficult time. And slowly but surely, I became a prayer. From the early days of COVID, I began a prayer journal where I committed to pray for people's situations at the start of each day. At night, getting into bed, I pray for a set of people who have sleep issues. Nowadays, not a week goes by without a prayer request coming in to me about something. Nowadays, I'm known as someone who prays. What praying a blessing on our thorn every morning has led to for me is something that I wouldn't have missed out on for anything. Despite the pain at the time, I can honestly say that I would rather have that thorn and all of the enrichment that has come to my life because of it than it being taken away or never having happened in the first place. If your thorn is a person, I want to challenge you to start praying for them every day and see what happens. I believe that there are things that we can learn from our thorns, like Paul did, without them needing necessarily to be removed. When we encounter thorns in our life, how we react to them and engage with them is crucial. Viktor Frankl was a Jewish psychiatrist who experienced several of the death camps during the Holocaust. When the US Army eventually liberated Dachau, he had already lost his wife, his children, and his health. Yet, yet he was able to say these incredible words. 
Life may have taken things from you that you never thought you would lose, but one thing remains which it cannot take, your choice as to how you will live tomorrow. Many of my friends and family wrote to me of physical thorns, of bad backs, migraines, eye conditions, impediments to their health due to the disruption of services, sciatic pain, ongoing pain from a caesarean a decade ago, which has left someone feeling low and unloved by God. A friend wrote to me about her recent diagnosis of polymyalgia and rheumatoid arthritis and her ongoing investigations for lymphoma. But these were the inspirational words that she finished with. He will give me the strength to walk through them and he will walk with me. I cried when I received a page answer from someone who carries a cancer gene, which she explains feels like a weakness in her DNA. What does someone who's had major choices to make and who's had significant medical interventions carried out because of that DNA weakness have to say on this subject of thorns when the pain and the fear of it for her and her family is her lived reality? This is what she says. I'm not strong because I have the strength alone to endure, but because in my weakness... He is my strength and my refuge. I live to serve and support others as best as I can and in a way that is supportive to them. I sing with conviction the words of this song. And on that day, when my strength is failing, the end draws near, and my time has come. Still, my song will be your praise unending. Wow. When my thorns press hard where health is concerned, I want to be like her. I want to have courage and an attitude like that, that rather than wallowing and it being all about me, looks outward to others and sees how I can support them. Thermostat behaviour. In conclusion, last week there were documentaries marking 25 years since the death of Princess Diana in Paris. I'm sure that a lot of people here can remember where they were when they heard the news of her death. I'm also old enough to remember, as a child, Elvis's death. And I remember where I was stood by the radiator in our hallway when my mum telephoned from a holiday chalet in Dartmouth in the summer of 2008 to say that she had cancer throughout her right breast that was like candy floss. And I remember the question that I called out to God that day, why my mum? And I can tell you that now, I don't need the answer to that question, this side of heaven. In his amazing poem, The Answer, my favourite poet, Aris Thomas, writes this. There have been times when after long on my knees in a cold chancel, a stone has rolled from my mind 
and I have looked in and seen the old questions lie folded and in a place by themselves, like the piled grave clothes of love's risen body. That is what it is like for me. I too look in past a stone rolled from my mind and see my old questions folded in a place by themselves. For me too, they are redundant. For love's risen body is all of my answers rolled into one. And what of my mum? Did God answer her questions? When my mum went to bed in that Dartmouth chalet on the day she received her cancer news, she woke suddenly at 3am and the enormity of her diagnosis washed over her and she thought, this could be the end for me. Can you imagine? And then, these words from Paul, who truly knew what it was to be reached by the love of God, came to her. Can anything separate us from the love of God? Can trouble or hardship or persecution or danger? And she called out in a loud voice, can cancer separate me from the love of God? And in an even louder voice, she cried out this, no, because I am more than a conqueror through him who loves me. And she has not wavered from that day to this. If anyone was to ask me if my mum is somehow diminished to me, somehow reduced by her resulting mastectomy, somehow smaller now, I would say this. My mum couldn't be bigger in my life. She couldn't blaze brighter than she does. The respect that I have for her is immense because I know that when her thorn dug deep, when God didn't take it away, when her and others prayed earnestly, her faith did not waver for a second. Her God was never smaller to her, never reduced, never diminished. And I know that not everyone can say that about their mums, their spouses, their children, their friends, but I can say it about my mum. And I hope that I will always, even when she is no longer running alongside me, look to the example of my unwavering mum when my thorns dig deep. My mum who has shown me so powerfully, so palpably, what it is to trust God, not just in the heydays and the harvest times, but when the thorns press hard and our whys aren't always answered. Let me finish with Paul's words. Paul, a transformed, forgiven man who learned to live with his thorn. Words that are as relevant for us today as they were then. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race set before us.
and let me close with echoes of Viktor Frankl. However hard your own particular thorns press, however quiet the silence that follows your prayers seems, however much you've lost, no one can take from you or from me how we choose to live our tomorrows. Amen.